Hello to all you boys next door, mums and dads, new weds and nearly deads, and welcome to Dangerous Amusements, a podcast where we talk about the music of Elvis Costello. I'm Stu Arrowsmith, and in each episode I'll be joined by a special guest to chat all things Elvis, and I'll be asking them to help me compile the ultimate Elvis Costello playlist. Now remember, don't make any sudden movements, because these are Dangerous Amusements. For this episode, it's my great pleasure to welcome to Dangerous Amusements author and perhaps the busiest man in the literary world at the moment, Bill Schweigert. Hi, Bill. Hello, Stu. Thank you so much for having me. Oh, thank you for coming on. And uh, as we're going around the United States and ticking off the states one by one, just tell us where you are. So I am in Arlington, Virginia, just outside of Washington, D.C. And uh, when Elvis comes to play, usually he's playing in the Wolf Trap out in Reston. uh, And that's where I saw him last, just for, you know, to put it in Elvis (laughs) geographical terms. Fantastic. Well, we are inching our way towards 50 states. Um, It may take some years to tick them all off, but we'll, uh, we'll do our best. Listen, we're fortunate to have you on because, as I said there in the intro, you you must be one of the busiest men in the literary world at the moment with um, not one, but two projects coming out very close together. Just gives a little insight into where you are at the moment. Sure. Publishing is actually very slow, but I have two projects in just the quirk of fate that are releasing within just about a month from each other. Uh, The first one is called Three Days to Live, and it is actually a book by... James Patterson, uh, and who is the world's best-selling author, uh, according to his webpage and and uh, <laughs> some other articles as well. Uh, the man is a beast, and uh, I partnered with him on a novella. It's about thirty thousand words, uh, and it is about a risk consultant based out of Washington D.C. who, for uh, reasons because of the plot, is ordered to kill his family. But he has to figure out a way to get out of that with the clock ticking and in doing so has a chance to sort of relive his glory days from the military and dust off some skills that he uh, he used to have. So that was a lot of fun. And a month later in March, I have a, a book called The Guilty One coming out. It's a crime fiction. It's about a detective here in Alexandria, Virginia, who stops an active shooter incident six months uh, before the the opening pages and is lauded as a hero. The only problem is he does not remember a thing about that day. And in so doing, he starts to uh, discover more and more bodies and realizes there's a serial killer in the loose. And all of the uh, all of the victims have a tie back to uh, my main character. And he's trying to uh, prove that he's a good investigator while still struggling with his demons. So that was a you know, fun, fun projects to write. And as you said, I was doing two of them at once, but you can't really write two things at once. You have to pause one and start the other. So it was start and stop. But as I said, publishing is so slow that I actually wrote and finished these projects back in 2021. And it just takes a while for them to reach the marketplace. And of course it's happening within five weeks of each other. <laughs> oh, that's a great synopsis of each book for you. They sound great. Um, the one that you've done with James Patterson, I mean, how would that work collaborating with someone on a piece of fiction? Because that's something I imagine someone locks away by themselves with it all in their own head. How easy is is it to work with someone else on something like that? It was 
such an education because, you know, writing is a solitary pursuit. Uh, I've got my own process. He has his own process. His process is a lot more successful than my process. <laughs> um, so I think he, he says he's sold over 300 million books. And between the two of us, we have sold over 300 million books. So, um, but he, he approaches things very differently. He's a big outliner. Uh, he knows what he wants. And over a couple of months, we had the structure of the story. We had the bones of the story. And then I went off and write, and then he would write, and we just batted stuff back and forth. But I would think, I mean, this man is a machine. So I would have pages to send to him and I would send to him at eight o'clock in the morning. I'm like, okay, I bought myself a few hours. I can relax. <laughs> By the end of the day, he would have notes and changes and yeah, he, he ran circles around me, but it was such an education. It was so much fun. That sounds like a, a fascinating process to go through. So that's um, that's just come out now and then the guilty one will be out in March. So as I say, a busy time for you, but let's for a moment switch to another very prolific and creative man, Elvis Costello, and how and when you became a fan. And you were telling me that Spike was your way in? Spike was when I jumped on the Elvis train. So I think I'm the class ahead of you because you're a mighty like a rose guy, right? Mm. That's when you, yeah. So yeah. I I jumped aboard uh, in, in 1989 and I did a little research and I'm telling you, Stu, I prepared for this. I put more effort into this than I put into some college news, some college <laughs> research papers. Um, Does this mean I have to mark everything you say? Yes, this I, I fully expect to be graded by you and your audience. Um, you know, I fully expect the judgment and the tweets. Um, and and by the way, I just have to say I first came to Stu Aerosmith from the Libby Cudmore episode you had last yeah, year. Yeah, yeah. And I'm I'm friends with Libby on Twitter, and she tweeted, Hey, I'm on this Elvis Costello Dangerous Amusements podcast. And I was like, there, there's a place where you can just talk about Elvis Costello. This place exists. <laughs> so I said, I have to be on the show. Uh, so I have spent the better part of the last year preparing my song choices, you know, going through a World Cup-like bracketing system, <laughs> uh, consulting with my spiritual leaders, many sleepless nights to, to come up with Six glittering gems that I'm prepared to defend to the death. So um, all that said, yeah, I, I came aboard in Spike and it was released, I think, in, in February of 1989. So to set the stage for you, I am a nerdy, anal retentive 15 year old in New Jersey. And I would get up every morning before school and turn on. MTV. And in the like the seven o'clock hour block, um, they started playing Veronica. And back in 1989, most of the lead singers out there had big hair and were clad in leather. And those are just the men. Um, you know, everybody, you know, it was hair metal roamed the land. It was the dominant uh, apex predator of, of the charts. But I also looked last night and the number one song at the time was Paula Abdul's Straight Up. Okay. Uh, there was also in the top 10, Millie Vanilli, Tone Loke, New Kids on the Block. So there was definitely like, it was either hair metal 
where it was pop. And then comes this song, Veronica, that is completely unlike anything else on the charts. And it's got this, you know, bespectacled man who is singing this sad, wistful song with these Beatlesque harmonies and he's talking over the video. And mm. it was just, it was, it, it brought me in. I don't, I don't know why, I don't know why it clicked, but it was a great song. I, I dug the persona. Like this is a guy who is not preening for the camera. He's not strutting. There's not pyro. It's this sad little wistful song about his grandmother and dementia. And I just, I just locked in. So that was how, that's how I got on the Elvis train. And what were the next destinations on the train for you? Is that going back and collecting the the older stuff then? So I, then I got, um, you know, first I got Spike and then, you know, listening to that first album and the first track on that album, This Town, it's like going through this strange dark tunnel and then it opens up into this big open song and it had... You know, it had songs and, and melodies and Irish folk songs that was not those were not sounds that I was accustomed to. Those were not not the styles that I was used to. And I would say probably I was not a huge music guy, but probably my favorite band before Elvis Costello was the Beach Boys. So I was always hopelessly out of touch. Mm -hmm. But after that, like it listening to that so much, it did just carve channels into my brain and I got on the same wavelength. And then I think I picked up uh, the blue cassette of the very best of Elvis Costello, yeah, um, which had the greatest hits. So that was how I got my education into the greatest hits. And then I started properly going through the back catalog, starting with My Aim is True, working, working my way up. So that that's how I hit every destination. So by the time Mighty Like a Rose came out, I went from not knowing who Elvis was. I mean, I had heard every day I write the book. It got some airplay on MTV, but it didn't, I didn't lock in. But then by the time Mighty Like a Rose came around, I was full-blown Elvis fanatic. I don't want to kiss you. I don't want to talk. I don't want to see you because I don't miss you that much I'm not a telephone junkie I told you that we were just good friends But when I hold you like I hold that baker like in my hands There's no Okay, let's start looking at some of the songs that you've picked out for us. You've already promised there's a year's worth of research and thought and inspiration have gone into these choices, Bill, so we're expecting great things. Um, as with every other guest, I've asked you to pick out six songs, one per decade from the 70s up to the 2020s. We'll put them on a playlist for this season, which will be called Bedroom Alibis, and will be on the website at the end of this season. And we begin with the track that we've just heard, the opening song on this year's model, It's No Action. So in the in the pre-chat, you and I were talking and I said casually that I don't think that I know of many casual Elvis Costello fans like you are in or you are out. Uh, I certainly am in. But because of that, I don't listen. I find and I don't know if this is true for you, but I find I don't listen to Elvis casually. It's an active thing. It's not like I'm going to play 
armed forces sitting around the dinner table with my family. Like it's all loaded with nostalgia. It's, it's super energetic. And there's, there are no CD towers anymore. So I don't have his whole discography, like (laughs) sitting in the room where I can point to something and say, Oh, I'm going to pull this out. I'm going to listen to it. So everything is on the phone. Um, So sometimes I just need a blast of Elvis. Sometimes I just need a, you know, just to reach in, get, you know, get a good blast of Elvis. And when I do that, I can think of no more perfect distillation uh, of Elvis than this year's model. And in particular, no action. That's why I chose this song. You are fired immediately out of a cannon uh, and it just goes. And it is two minutes of breathless, perfect pop punk. I don't even know what you'd call it. And it's it's a mission statement. The attractions are announcing themselves and it is so distilled. It is, it's like a perfect diamond. And it's my favorite iteration of Elvis. He is spitting into the mic. He is behind the guitar and he's got these cutting lyrics. He's, he's bringing the innuendo to the table. He is using the extended metaphors that he loves in this case a phone. And I just love it. It's just, if I need a, a quick fix, or just a dose of Elvis from that time period, it is going to be no action. And it was hard narrowing it down just from that, you know, that whole, that whole album, everything on there is Mm. pretty much a perfect distillation, but that might be more perfect than the others. Yeah. It does embody that whole vibe, doesn't it? Of this year's model, as you say, everything in two minutes that you get over the album. And of course, the interesting thing is they did record an earlier version of it that was with Andrew Bodner and Steve Gould in, in the summer of 77. And that could have gone in a completely different direction if he'd brought it out by then. But once you add the attractions to it, it really, it sets him off in the direction we get with this year's model. Well, I will have to listen to that version. Is that it's out there? Yeah. Yeah. I don't want to kiss you, I don't want to touch I don't want to see you cause I don't miss you that much I'm not a telephone junkie I told you that we were just good friends But when I hold you like I can hold that baby back in my hand there's no action. There's no action. There's no action. I will have to check that out because it, it's it's just absolutely again it's my favorite iteration of of Elvis that angry young man and just spitting venom and I love it because the bridge you know he shows just a hint of vulnerability. Um, you know, I think about the way things used to be knowing with you're with him is driving me crazy. Sometimes I phone you when I know I'm not lonely, but I was disconnected in time. And then he's right back into it. So I've always loved the Elvis, like he doesn't care the whole revenge and guilt sort of persona that he has, but he does care. He always, the, the main characters of his songs, the protagonists, it's so obviously they do care. It's usually sour grapes and again it has that over that bridge it's that it's that same sort of all right i'm gonna let the mask slip just a little bit and then the claws come back out Hmm. and it has that little bit of continuity with 
My aim is true and in armed forces in that the opening track begins with Elvis singing alone for the first few words before the band kicks in as well, which is just a little recurring thing on those first few records. It's a total, totally dynamic thing. And then when everybody just kicks in, it's I, I literally feel like you're being fired out of a cannon. Yeah. This version produced by Nick Lowe and then released, of course, on this year's model in 1978. That early version I mentioned you can pick up on the uh, the My Aim is True reissues from the 2000s as well. And then, of course, we get another version more recently on um, Spanish model with uh, Nina Diaz doing the vocals as well. So all these different variations of the song and they all just, yeah, it's such a great opener, isn't it? It's, it's, uh, it's perfect. And it's, you know... It, I love it for all of the academic reasons and but it's the song is just badass. It's just pure adrenaline in 2 minutes. Great. Well, let's move into the 1980s and pick a song from that decade from the playlist and you are taking us to the album Get Happy. King Horse is special. I mean, I if I haven't already called you a bastard for making me only select a single song from the entirety of the 1980s. You have, don't do worry. You did. You okay, did. good. And I'm I'm very pleased to join the long line of folks who have who have done that. But you know what, Bill? You're nobody in this town until everybody thinks you're a bastard. So that's fine. Exactly. See? There you go. It's perfect. Um and I, I'm sort of half joking about the World Cup bracketing. Like you made me put together or put head to head my favorite albums. And if you'd have told me, oh, it's not going to be King of America. I'd be like, what? It's not going to be Blood and Chocolate. But there is just something about Get Happy uh, and King Horse in particular. And if you had a podcast just picking the top five tracks from Get Happy, I would be riveted. That would be hmm. a hard podcast to do. Um but King Horse, I, I don't know what it is. All of the songs are great. It's got the, you know, all of the songs on that album have the, the carnival sounding organs and the Motown beats. And But King Horse just has this dramatic sweep to it. I don't really know how to describe it. I'm not a, you know, I don't understand musical theory, but it's it just has this drama to it. Uh, it just sounds big. It sounds grand. And I, I love how he sort of sings over himself yes. in the higher range, almost as an echo in the background. I just love everything about the song. But there's just one moment that made me pick this, and it's the bridge. You see, I knew that song so long before we met that it means much more than it might. And there's that pause, and then the guitar string plucks. Yes. And it's this perfect little sonic wink. It literally sounds like a wink. And 
one of the things I've always loved about Elvis is that he always seems like he has an inside joke that you're not quite in on. And even in his videos, he smiles at the, at the weirdest times. And you're like, something's going on in the back of his head and he doesn't really care if you get it or not. So I always just loved the idea of the two lovers in this song. And he's saying, this is our song, but I've been around a long time and this could have been my song with somebody else. And he just pauses that it means much more than it might. And just pling. And he's winking. It literally sounds like the guitar is winking. And then it's just off to the races again. If I ever miss this good thing that I got, I never want to hear the song you dedicated tonight. Cause you see, I knew that song so long before we met, that it means much more than it. It really pleases me that moment in the song far more than just a split second, perhaps. Sure. It does. It makes me smile. Yeah. It's just it. It absolutely delights me, and that could be my contender. If you gun to my head, that could be because of that my favorite Elvis Costello song. And it's just, it's got the drums, it's got the organ, it's got the vocals. It's 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 perfect. Yeah. And that sound, which is different, of course, from the other albums, Elvis said the decision to change was not exactly agonised over. It took a few drinks, a handful of old stack singles and our copies of Motown Chart Busters Volume 3 for us to imagine that we could quickly find a new blueprint for the album. Uh, and then he also said that the guitar figure comes straight from Reach Out, I'll Be There by The Four Tops. His lyrics come from a couple of earlier songs and he uses them now to portray the kind of vain and foolish fellow I feared that I might easily have become. I love the whole album. It's just got, it just has great grooves um, because of everything that you just said and all of his influences. And I, I don't know, did you ever pick up the three disc set girls, girls, girls? Oh yeah. I've got that. Yeah. And I love the liner notes mm. in there. And that was when I was doing my March of, you know, getting everything Elvis. I think that came out. Um, when I was still learning, you know, my apprenticeship, if you will. Uh, and I love the liner notes for that song that he is, he's on an airplane 35,000 feet over the Pacific. And he said something like the only, the only other, uh, career that is more unsuitable to travel is the armed forces or something like mm -hmm. that. And he's, he says he's pissed off and he's looking to hang the best insult on all of these people. And then he sees himself in the mirror and he's like, yeah, King horse. Yeah. So he just sort of directs it back upon himself. So yeah, I just love that song. Yeah. The song was considered as a possible single at one point, which obviously didn't happen. Although it did appear on the B side of an American promo EP. I think this would have been a great single. Don't you? Absolutely. I don't even know because, you know, I grew up stateside and was discovering this music sometimes 10 years too late. You know, I'm not even sure what the singles were at the time, but it, it should have been. Yeah. We get a big hit with, I can't stand up for falling down from this record. So no complaints that it hit the charts. True. For and a single I, I mean, well. as far as over here, high fidelity always got played a lot yeah. over here. Yeah. Um, but yeah, King horse just delights me. You're listening to dangerous amusements. This had better be worth all of the breath I'm wasting. The song that you're adding to the playlist from the 1990s is The Other Side of Summer, the opening track on the album Mighty Like a Rose, um, which was released in a single where it peaked 
at number 43 in the UK charts in April 1991. The sun struggles up another beautiful day And I felt glad my own suspicious way I love this song. It when it when Mighty Like a Rose came out, like I I joked that my apprenticeship was over. I had listened to everything and bought everything between Spike and Mighty Like a Rose. And I think I had mentioned that my favorite band prior to Elvis Costello was the Beach Boys. So now all of a sudden Elvis Costello has this lush Beach Boys harmony-esque song. And I tell you, it was like it was genetically engineered in a lab to please only me. (laughs) I adored this song, which is why it was so painful that I had to break up with it. I think it came out in April of 91. At the same time, I was accepted into uh, the Coast Guard Academy, which is funny because I referenced the Armed Forces. Then I joined the Armed Forces. So, um, But the thing about the Coast Guard Academy is it's kind of like Hogwarts, but instead of magic, it's all push-ups. They did not let you have any personal effects and you are not allowed to have any music. So... Like my favorite song from my favorite album just drops. And then two months later, I have to give it all up and not allowed to have a Walkman. That's how old I am. Not allowed to have a Discman, no stereos. Those were privileges for the upper class. So I remember we went up to Connecticut, my family and I, and they're getting ready to drop me off. And we were driving the five minutes to the hotel from the hotel to the front gates of the academy. And we are blasting the other side of summer. And then we get to the gates and I got to turn it off. And then boom, head shaved, put a uniform on, get sworn in, get screamed at, no music for months. Mm -hmm. Um, And you were only allowed to have a one 10 minute phone call with your family once a week for that first summer. And once you got into the school year, you could have some more time on the phone. But I remember calling my sister and asking her to play the other side of summer and holding the phone <laughs> to the stereo so I could listen to it on a payphone. Yeah, That's how much I love that song. Wow. What a vivid memory of that time in your life. Well, when you're getting screamed at, you're doing a lot of push-ups, um, you know, <laughs> it, it, and he has this stanza in in the on the bridge of the song the mightiest rose the absence of perfume the casual killers the military curfew the cardboard city and unwanted birthday the other side of summer and that was like high poetry to me because july 4th is my birthday i got sworn in july 8th you know the military curfew um, the absence of perfume, boy, it was stinky. A lot of boys doing a lot of push-ups. <laughs> yeah. Um, but yeah, I I just love that song. Again, I th- it was it was like he reached into my brain and pulled out. Oh, you like the Beach Boys? You like lyricism? You like you know all of it filtered through 
the sensibilities of Elvis. Mm -hmm. So it's, it's perfect. So I could have gone a number of different directions. Like I love brutal youth. Um, but yeah, I couldn't, I couldn't, no other song made me call up my sister on a payphone and ask her to play it from New Jersey to Connecticut. So you were a telephone junkie after all. I was a telephone junkie. <laughs> yep. See, it's all coming back, Stu. It's all coming back. While you were serving a professional career, it's all making sense now. Um, so the Beach Boys songs that Elvis references here, he said he was thinking of things like The Trader and Funky Pretty. Musically, we've got four keyboards, two basses, two guitars, and then everything double-tracked. And lyrically, Elvis says the words are a catalogue of pop conceits, deceits, hypocrisies, and delusion. I include myself in this parade of liars and dupes. Reviewing the single, Billboard said the song may surprise some with its carnival keyboard fills and bright harmonies. Costello's literate lyrics and biting vocals remain intact. Uh, it's a fantastic opening track produced by Costello, Kevin Killen, and Mitchell Froome. And it's from the album, which is adorning your chest while we're having this conversation. Just there we go. Mighty this like is true. My, my mother uh, a year or so ago was going through some of my old childhood drawers and found all of my Elvis Costello concert t-shirts from the early 90s. And I am wearing my Mighty Like a Rose concert t-shirt now, just draping myself in that nostalgia. And it's it's funny. I think I read in an interview at the time that he called it this, the Mighty Like a Rose, like this great Rococo beast and it's funny because everything else out there later in that fall, Nirvana came out mm -hmm. and everybody was listening to Smells Like Teen Spirit. And by that time, we were allowed some privileges, like you could go to one of the recreation rooms in the library and play music. Uh, everybody else was playing Smells Like Teen Spirit. I was like rocking out to Sweet Pear. I mean, <laughs> again, <laughs> horribly out of step, but it's, that's just what I loved. Yeah. So what about your live experiences then? Um, what was the first gig you went to? The first gig I went to was when he was touring Mighty Like a Rose. I think it was with the Rude Five. Hmm. And I remember hanging outside with, with my best friend, and this is so embarrassing. Um, and we're like, we got to meet him. We have to figure out a way to meet him. And we're 17 years old at this point. And as we're figuring out a way, I don't know what we were planning to do to break back into the stadium or something. He goes driving down um, one of the back roads with the windows down and we just look at each other and we take off after the car. And our, our master plan was we're so smart. Like we're <laughs> going to refer to him as Mr. McManus to really get his attention because we know we're true fans. And we caught him up to him at the stoplight, little stalkery. I'm not going to lie, but we were 17 and we're like, Mr. McManus, Mr. McManus, could we have a signature? He's like, I'm sorry, guys, I really got to go. I really got to go guys. And then, off he went. Um, I've I've seen him in Atlanta. I've seen him in DC. I've probably seen him over the years about a dozen times. Um, and we saw him last. He was touring the boy named If, and he was playing at the Wolf Trap here in Virginia with Nick Lowe and Low Straightjackets, and oh, it yeah. was absolutely wonderful. I'm a big Low Straightjackets fan. They've got a great gimmick and they're wonderful musicians. And of course, Nick Lowe. So it was an opportunity of a lifetime to actually see Elvis Costello and Nick Lowe squared up, shoulder to shoulder, belting out what's so funny about peace, love and understanding. Mm. That was definitely a bucket list thing. That was that was tremendous. 
Yeah. What were some of the other highlights from that last gig? Um uh... He played this beautiful version, and I don't know if I've seen it since maybe the Brutal Youth Tour, but this really great version of Still Too Soon to Know. Wow. I was haunting. Um, green Shirt, I think he opened with. And I like Green Shirt. It's never been one of my favorites, but it's it has a power live that you just can't you can't deny. Hmm. I've only really seen like the big tours. I'm jealous because I've listened to so many episodes of your podcast, and people are like, oh, I got to see him you know, playing this intimate gig with a piano mm. or, you know, oh, I saw him when it was just him and Steve Naive playing, or the, you know, the two-man thing. I've never been able to see any of those things when he comes over to the States. It's usually to, you know, to support a, a bigger sort of proper tour. I remember seeing him two nights in a row in Atlanta um, when he was touring When I Was Cruel. Those were epic shows. Mm. And I remember getting some stuff signed by him. That was the closest I came to sort of meeting him. He was just going down the line and signing people. And the woman right next to me says, can I have a kiss Elvis? And he was like, what? So then he gets to me. I'm like, we don't have to kiss Elvis. And he just gives me a look <laughs> like, what? Who are you? So that was, those are my two highly embarrassing interactions, micro moments uh, with Elvis, me chasing his car down and then me offering not to kiss him. So we move now into the new century and a song from the 2000s and you've gone for something from the album Momofuku and the track is Song with Rose. I I was kind of surprised that this was my choice. Um, when I was cruel was huge for me. And I remember, and I was having this conversation with my daughter when an Elvis album would drop or whoever it would be, whoever anybody's favorite artist would be, especially back then when there was so much less media so many less demands on your attention. There was no streaming. There was no nothing. When an artist dropped, your favorite artist dropped an album, it was a seismic event that you oriented your year around. And my daughter is, my daughter's 15. She's at my Elvis Costello learning age, and she's going through that with Taylor Swift. And When I Was Cruel was huge for me. But like I said, when I want to go back and get like a perfect distillation of Elvis or I need a just a good rock and roll blast uh, from Elvis, I kind of go back to Momofuku, uh, which I don't know that it was as heralded as some of his other records, but I just love it. I think he's in outstanding form. Um, Jenny Lewis is all over that record, and I am a huge fan of Jenny Lewis and Rilo Kylie. So that chocolate and peanut butter combination is hit all the right spots for me. And I know I've said my favorite iteration of Elvis is the, the Angry Young Punk. And there is great songs on that record. You know, No Hiding Place, uh, American Gangster Time, which just has some brutal cutting lyrics. Yeah. But I just love Song for Rose. There is a
it's a little countrified and that's not my jam usually, but there's something about Song with Rose. It's just this very sweet, very moving song. And I love the line, here lie the roses in the ashes, deep as the barnacles that cling, just like a lace that runs through everyone and everything. And he's always been the lyricist for me, obviously. He's the best in the business. But that sort of generosity of spirit is not something that I could have envisioned from the guy who sang, I don't want to kiss you, I don't want to touch you. Just like a lace that runs through everyone and everything is just so lovely to me. And it's a it's a beautiful line on its own, but sung with Jenny Lewis and... Steve Naive's interweaving piano, it just sort of, it just soars. It goes up and up and it's a great vocal performance and a great sentiment. And it's sort of an outside of the box choice for me, given all the other great stuff in that decade. But that's, I find myself going back to that song a lot. I love this choice because it's not one of the more obvious ones. And I love the fact that he has so many of these little gems that are tucked away. And, you know, hopefully people listening in, if they've not heard the song before, might go away and check it out. Or people who do know it, but perhaps haven't quite listened to it for a while, could go and dig that back out and enjoy it once more because it's such a great song. The lyric co-written with Roseanne Cash via email. They, of course, went on to write another song together, again via email, and this time with Chris Christopherson called April 5th. They performed that on season one of Spectacle, and that was also released on the Unfaithful Music and Soundtrack album in 2015. The pair also recorded the song Heartaches by the Number for the 2009 album Roseanne Cash the list and I agree with you I I just think Momofuku is one of those you can just put it on and let it play because it's such a great listen all the way through and those um, those little cameo appearances we've got Jenny Lewis Jonathan Rice Dave Sher, Jonathan Wilson the album produced by Costello and Jason Lader yeah I'm never disappointed when I play Momofuku and I don't know if Jenny Lewis was his good luck charm or something, or like the patron saint hanging over the album, but like she's on a lot of the tracks and they all just rock. And um, I think she's a great addition. And I know he had a song on her album, Acid Tongue called Carpetbagger, which yeah. is a, another great rocker. Um, but yeah, I, I dig that whole album. That is one of the ones that I will play, just like you said, front to back. It's just high octane. He's loose. It's immediate and it just rocks. And again, I will follow Elvis down just about every rabbit hole. Like, oh, it's 1993. You're going to do chamber music. Okay. I guess I'm in. Sure. And I loved it. Absolutely. Like, oh, country, almost blue. Again, not a country guy, but I love his sensibility and I trust him. So I will follow him down that rabbit hole. But as I get older, as we'll see in the next decade, it is harder to follow everything just to, it's just, sometimes it's hard to keep up and he's so prolific. And that's why when I want a blast of Elvis, when I want some just straight ahead, kick-ass rock and roll, I will put on Momofuku and just go. Hmm. The album released in April, 2008 after being recorded at Sound City. And it was released so kind of informally, wasn't it? There was no great announcement. It just kind of slipped out. And I think that just made it an even more enjoyable experience. We weren't expecting the record. It lands. It's great. What better way of getting a new album of Elvis Costello music? 
Yeah. And I, my, my daughter was born in January of 2008. I moved into the house that I'm living in in April of 2008. And then it's like, wait, what? Elvis just dropped in a record? What? Like, I had so much going on. If you tell me that Elvis is going to drop a record again, that's what I'm going to orient my year around. You know, it's, it's, it was 15 year old me. It's a seismic event, but you know, 40 year old me, it's, <laughs> it kind of sneaks up on you sometimes. Yeah. So have you tried to pass on the Costello torch to your daughter? I'm trying. Okay. This podcast has helped. Okay. And so it'll be like, can I play some Taylor Swift? I'm like, honey, I have to do some research. You have to listen to this. So I'm being I'm being very sneaky. But my my daughter's a singer. She is um a fantastic singer. So it's I'm I'm hoping that you know she will she will come to it and I will keep trying. You don't know what's going on. You've been away for far too long. Think you are still mine You're obsolete, my baby My profession, baby I said, baby, baby, baby You're out of time Oh, baby, baby, baby You're out of time That is Elvis Costello and the Imposters version of Out of Time, the Jagger and Richards song, uh, which was released on the Spectacular Spinning Songbook Live album in May 2011. And that is your choice, Bill, from the 2010s. Yeah, this is this is when I have to make my dark confession, because this was the decade my daughter turned two or three. I'm, you know starting, you know, I have a, a full-time job. I'm trying to get the writing career going as well. I'm a, I'm a parent, I'm a husband. And this is, this decade is sort of my Elvis Costello doldrums. And it is no reflection whatsoever on his output. So save your tweets, people. <laughs> save your tweets. I don't want to hear it. It is me. It is all me. Just because like I referenced for the last song, like you, I, it would be a, big deal when Elvis would release a record and then life just sort of gets in the way. And you're like, wait, did, did Elvis Costello release a bluegrass record? Oh, that was last year. You know, you're kind of, you know, your life just gets in the way sometimes. So, but one of the things that I did discover, and this is still a bit of a cheat because I only discovered this live album about a couple of years ago, mm. but it came out in 2011. So I am hoping that the judges will accept this choice and it is out of time. And I'm going to further apologize because I did not realize upon first listening to it that it was a cover mm-hmm. of the Rolling Stones. So, yes, I know that's also a staggering <laughs> blind spot uh, in my pop culture knowledge. And at this point, all of your listeners have absolutely turned against me, but that's OK. <laughs> but I just love this performance, even though it's a bit of a cheat for me. I love the growl of the guitar. Uh, I love the swing of it, everything. And I think lyrically it, it complements the rest of his catalog. Like if you didn't know, you would think, oh, this is just a lost Elvis gem. It just fits so neatly. And that that whole live disc or live record is, is fantastic. It's got great performances of 
Every day I write the book and I hope you're happy now, which is another one of my absolute favorites. And Nicolo's the heart of the city, but for whatever reason, like I will go back and listen to out of time mm. all the time. Yeah, no, it's a great cut on a brilliant live album. I agree with you. I love that record and I'm not rubbing it in here that you didn't get to see it, but I went to quite a few shows on the the spinning wheel tours in the early 2010s and they were fantastic. And my oh. One of my own little Elvis encounters, I didn't talk about kissing him as you did, but it was at one of these shows when he went walkabout during a piano number. Um, so Steve's playing the piano on stage and Elvis goes walk about in the stalls with a handheld mic. I think he, he might have been singing Almost Blue or She or one of those ballads. And I was right at the front in the stalls in the Liverpool Empire. And uh, he shook my hand as, uh, as he was walking past whilst still singing a song, um, which I was very, very that's a pro- That's a high degree of difficulty. Like it is. To- it is. I couldn't sing and move. I can't sing anyway, but I certainly couldn't do two things at once. Um, that's amazing. So I have been so curious about the format. And I remember listening to your Mark Billingham episode. I Great crime writer. I love his stuff. Didn't he say that he went in the cage or went to the bar? Yeah. So whoever was brought up from the audience to spin the wheel then had a choice, or it, I don't know if it was their choice, Elvis would decide whether they would go and dance in the cage or they could stand, uh, you know, there was a high chair at the bar on the stage as well in the society lounge. So my view is you were lucky if you got to sit down and uh, pretend to have a drink rather than dance in front of your mates in a go-go cage, which... Uh, yes, I can see it, how that might be a little nerve-wracking. Is the great risk of the whole enterprise, I think. And as I've said before on here, those gigs, I would desperately want to be picked to go up and spin the wheel but then in the corner of your eye is the go-go cage and you think no I think I'd rather stay here thank you (laughs) and so when Elvis was shaking my hand which was quite a sweaty handshake because he was in the middle of performing um I did worry that I was about to be dragged somewhere but thankfully not um but they were uh they were fantastic shows such a good vibe about them and the band were great so much fun yeah yeah how so how do they work what is the format like because like he's not spinning the wheel every after every song is he no there were a set set chunks i guess in the set list so okay. you know you're going to get that opening salvo of i hope you're happy now heart of the city was it radio radio and mystery dance as the opening songs and then he would start bringing people up from the audience they'd spin and he'd play what came up or not if he didn't fancy playing it and I think from memory out of time might have been behind a segment on the wheel that just said time so it was a themed segment Um, so there would be a few so you know he probably did man out of time in that little section as well Uh, and then he did out of time as well which was uh, which was really cool well it's been over a decade so I hope he dusts off that format again because i would love to see it and i'm just so curious like how how do you go about it and not completely stop the momentum of a show but i'm sure he's figured it out by now yeah well my more concern is how you transport it from one gig to the next because it's exactly uh, it's quite a big contraption anyway but uh no they were great shows i would i'd take any elvis show of course but i'd love to see the, the spinning wheel again it was uh it was such a good tour um, and he's doing the the every now and again i think he'll go out and do the album themed show mm, so mm. a few years ago the time i saw him before last was uh when he was touring imperial bedroom and it's an entirety 
Yeah. And I love those as well, but I would love to see the spinning songbook. Mm -hmm. Yeah. I'd watch it again, definitely. So let's just get the stats on Outer Time. It was originally released on the Rolling Stones' 1966 album Aftermath, and then it was taken to the top of the UK charts as a single by Chris Farlow in the summer of 1966, and his version was actually produced by Mick Jagger himself and also featured on the album The Art of Chris Farlow. And of course, just a few months ago, there's a studio version by Elvis and the Imposters and Charlie Sexton, uh, which was released on the album Alive at Memphis Magnetic, which is great as well. I put a pencil from the flower to tell just where my fortune fell. And we've reached the final song that you've chosen for the playlist. This one comes from the decade, the 2020s, and you've gone for The Difference. So in one of your pods from the last season, I think it was Mark Lamar, you you guys were talking about um, how it probably annoys him or it's annoying that like every record is hailed as a return to form. Mm. Um but damn it, this does sound like a return to form. Like, I can't help but think, again, my favorite iteration of Elvis is a rocking Elvis. And as soon as you are blasted by Farewell OK, you cannot think that this guy is not, you know, he is not screwing around. He is bringing it. As my daughter would say, he is serving. Um, and I love that song. It swings. It's a great rock and roll number. But the song that I keep going back to is, is The Difference. And I love it because it starts out kind of like we were talking about with this town. It starts off with this sort of weird, herky-jerky delivery, and it's got a clangy sort of atonal guitar. And you're like, I don't know that I necessarily like this song. But then it just opens up and completely resolves. And that whole do you know do you know do you batch it it just goes up and up and up and i love it and it just it's a big fat chorus to me that's reminiscent of something off of brutal youth mm. like it's just huge and open and accessible and i just love that song and then when he goes this and it, this, the chorus i think is only twice and he's like do you know do you know do you by chance no and that second time he sings no, in that second chorus, rather, it just he really like opens it up, I guess. He just cuts loose vocally just for a moment. And then there's that restraint. I just love the vocal delivery of the song. I just love that big, wide open chorus that is reminiscent of his earlier stuff, but is still brand new and fresh. And yeah, I just love that song. Yeah, it's a fantastic record. The song inspired by the 2018 Polish movie Cold War, directed by Pavel Pavlovsky. Elvis explaining that 
One of the characters in the film uh, replied at one point, I used a knife to show him the difference. He said, I thought this could be transposed into a seduction between two people approximately the same age. What would it be like if a boy who thinks he's more experienced is trying to seduce a woman only to discover that she knows much more about this scenario than he thinks? That sounds perfectly obscure. I have not seen that movie. <laughs> it, it, is, it is not in my Netflix queue, but I will take his word for it. <laughs> and uh, of course, this was released on The Boy Named Div in January 2022. It's performed by The Imposters and produced by Elvis and Sebastian Chris. And of course, this was recorded remotely. We were still in pandemic times, as we are in another sense now, but we were very much in the thick of it when this record was being recorded. And I can't get over how great an ensemble performance it is when they are all geographically so spread and being brought together by the technology. It's uh, it's a wonderful artistic achievement. It just, it sounds so, it sounds so full and so lush and it's, Again, I, I don't want to insult him by saying it's a return to form, but it is a return to form of my sort of favorite iteration where he is, all right, we are not screwing around anymore. We're going to have some straight ahead rock, but it's going to be, parts are going to be weird and and parts are going to be jangly and it's going to have my, you know, strange lyrics and, but it's, it just is straight ahead for me. It's so accessible. It's just a, it's a great pop album. It's a great rock album. It's just got track after track they just all deliver yeah and i i just get really pleased that it has that external recognition that it's gone into the top 10 of the uk chart it gets the nominations for album of the year and at the grammys and things like that it just i don't know it means more to me than perhaps it should that this great piece of work is getting the acknowledgement it deserves it probably means more to us than it does to him <laughs> yeah he probably doesn't care but like yeah, for for guys like us, you know, we're like, come on, let's let's give the guy his due. Yeah. And he's got such a daunting back catalog. It's how do you even start? But if this gets him some more recognition and brings some more fans to the table, hell yeah. Yeah. And just to bring us back full circle to where we started, we began by talking about your projects at the moment and the the novella that's just come out. You've got a novel about to follow. Do you ever draw on Elvis's music or imagery as influence when you're writing a story? 1000%. Uh, from the very first short story that I wrote back in college, I like nicked a couple of phrases from, you know, Elvis lyrics, because uh, imitation is the best form of flattery. <laughs> and until you're finding your own voice, you are copying others. Um, so I am currently writing the sequel to the guilty one. And my detective uh, is on a sort of a guard detail to a visiting singer who is like a Billie Eilish type. And she's 16 years old. And for reasons that I will get into later, like everyone is trying to kill her. She's a target and he has to protect her. And when they first meet, he's trying to like crack her shell because he's a 30 something detective. And she's a 16-year-old global pop star, and he drops an Elvis Costello lyric, and she picks up on it. Oh, wow. And, and, you know, she's like, oh, great. You know, you're trying to mansplain something using Elvis Costello, and it kind of, like, wounds my main character. He's like, 
shit, I like Elvis Costello. And she's like, God damn it. So do I. And then later in the plot, she's running through the woods being hunted by somebody and he has to sort of get word to her, but he can't communicate with her. So he plays red shoes over the loudspeaker uh, in this camping area. So she knows, ah, he's here. He's coming to save me. So yeah, the, he he references Red Shoes earlier in the book and that. So I just kind of gave a big spoiler for anybody who cares <laughs> for the next book. Hopefully everybody will forget, but absolutely 1000% I draw on Elvis. Yeah. Fantastic. Okay. So we've got women and children first out as part of three days to live and you've got the guilty one on the way. So wish you well with all of that, Bill, and look forward to the one that you've just referenced that you're working on. And just generally, thanks so much for coming on and and sharing your love of Elvis with us. Stu, thank you so much. I, this was a lot of fun. It was a lot of hard work, but I've been waiting to have this conversation since 1989. Thank you, Bill, for coming on. An extremely busy man at the moment. The novella he wrote with James Patterson is out now in three days to live. Bill's new novel is The Guilty One. Details of both and all his other books on BillSchweigert.com and at BillSchweigert on Twitter. Bill's song choices will go onto the Bedroom Alibis playlist at the end of the series. That'll be on my website, DangerousAmusements.co.uk. Follow the pod on Twitter and Instagram. And if you're enjoying the show, do please leave a five-star rating and review on Apple and Spotify to help other people find us. The theme music for Dangerous Amusements is performed by Gary Mulcahy. You've been listening to Dangerous Amusements. We've buried all the innocents. Now we must bury revenge.